What's up, guys? Welcome to Care Coach Lead. This is Andrew Frezza, and I got Austin Bettigrew and Melissa Dixon from our team joining us today. And today we're going to be talking about the three types of training that you need to be incorporating with all your clients to make them better. And we're going to be specifically talking about practice, training, and competing. Okay, if you guys never heard those buckets before, I originally heard them from Ben Bergeron. It's something that he breaks down in his competitive excellence camp. I don't know if he's still doing those camps, but I got a chance to participate in one and then help with one as a coach. And it's something that he breaks down and I found it incredibly useful. It is really useful if you're talking about a high level competitor, games athlete, any sport. But if you're talking about even the everyday person, it can really open your eyes of like, where does this person need to spend time to improve? They're hitting a plateau, they're not improving. How do we make them better? And how do we have a framework for breaking that down? Okay, so we're gonna break down practice, training, and competing to give you guys an idea of where we can really target it to get them to improve faster, okay? So let's go through the first one, practice, okay? What does it mean to practice something? I think the easiest way to think about this is other sports, right? If you're thinking about baseball or football or basketball, right? You have practice is going to look like shooting some free throws. It's going to look like hitting off the tee, doing drills that are like, instead of the, the game is like multi-components, multiple things happening at once. Practice is like, let's focus on a single aspect, a single component, and let's do it in a setting that is low pressure, low heart rate, and let's just work on the skill of it. Yeah. When I think practice, I think like high repetitions and we never do high repetitions under like heavy weight or like a lot of you know the volume is the high thing so everything else has to be really low in order to just keep going and going and going and repeating and repeating because if you don't get thousands of repetitions on something you're never going to get closer to perfect and that's where we want you to be when we start adding load when we start adding speed when we start adding all that intensity in we just want you to have a million reps under your belt so you are for sure going to do it the right way. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think the idea is just to hopefully change your muscle memory in a way that's going to benefit you when things do ramp up. Yeah, if you guys have ever heard of the 10,000 hour rule, it's something that pops into my head when I think of practicing something. It's just, uh, I think it was uh, made popular in the book uh, Outliers, I think, by Malcolm Gladwell. And he basically just talks about if you want to be world class in something, you need about 10,000 hours, you know, 10,000 hours playing soccer, 10,000 hours playing an instrument, you need to accumulate those reps. And those things don't have to be done with a ton of fatigue, but you need that exposure and you need to build it over time. And, you know, so many people, I, I think in, in CrossFit specifically, the nature of intensity, the value of intensity is so, it's so much at the forefront that people are quick to skip to these advanced levels. And you know, you'll even hear people in a warm-up that are like, oh, I, I don't move well with the PVC pipe, or I can't do single unders. And then they like give up because they don't do that thing, even though they might clean decently well, they might have decent double unders, but they're like missing these lower level skills or they're not willing to practice the foundational elements because they think that they're putting so much focus on where they want to be, that end result, that they don't think about the building blocks to get there. They'll probably get better when they add weight though. <laughs> I think about, um, especially double unders in the instance of, I think we've all had clients come to us and be like, oh, I can always get like 30 in the warm up, but I can never do them in a workout. 
what has changed in the workout, their heart rate's higher, you know, it's, chances are in that 30, they were fighting through some technique issues and just getting by in those 30 and they happened, but they didn't happen well. And then once you add fatigue, once you add any other breakdown of a muscle group, they're not able to string three together because their technique isn't there to support it to begin with, but they feel like they can do 30 in a row because they have done it with a donkey kick or with some other type of like, you know, crutch that they've used instead of having good technique from the start that they could do in their sleep. Yeah, like a week or two ago in Beach we actually did a, a jump rope practice where we just focused on them jumping and then we focused on where the elbows and hands should be. And it was pretty eye-opening for some people. And that was just a very short practice. Like ideally, if they want to get better at that movement, that needs to happen much more often for them. But just, you know, the five minutes that we spent on it was pretty eye-opening for people about how their jump felt how they would be able to actually jump more consistently because the jump was more consistent, whereas you get those donkey kickers, you get those people who do the opposite of whatever that is, kicking out in front, and then their arms start going it's wild. It's called the dolphin. The dolphin? <laughs> yes. I like that. The dolphin and donkey. Uh, and then you start getting the arms going wild and stuff. And yeah, just giving them the, the, the blueprint of what it should ideally look like, and then hopefully they carry on that practice um, just so we don't see it that often in classes. So just giving them the opportunity to have something to work on. Yeah, so I think you brought up a good point, which is when is this best performed in a class setting? And I think it works really well in a warm-up setting. I think you can take stuff that is maybe just in a normal warm-up just to get the heart rate going, just to kind of get them ramped up, and you can give it an intention and a focus where it actually becomes practice, right? Single unders in a warm-up could be just another movement you do to get warm, or it could have a very, very specific intention behind it, and it could be then practice for that day or immediately post warm up is another good time. Hey, we already have our jump ropes out. We already have an empty bar out. Let's practice this thing together for a few minutes. And I think you can do it in a way that doesn't slow down the class, gets people really focused and in the right mindset for the day. And then you can still spend the majority of your 45 minutes of your hour um, on the training and the competing, which I think is what most people are coming to us for in a class setting. I think, I think a lot of coaches in classes do this, but it's usually with the barbell. You know, they don't do it with like higher skilled movements, like gymnastics type movements. They do it with like, oh, we're gonna snatch today. We're gonna take you through a snatch progression. Mm -hmm. Working on like the practice of making sure you get back to position one or whatever, maybe finishing the pool. A lot of people do that. There's just not that much intention behind it. So how long is that actually gonna carry on into the strength or into the workout? Once intensity happens, like probably not, probably not very long. Yeah, I think coaches do that really well with the barbell, like you're saying. What I don't see as much of and what I think should happen more often in that setting is like, you know, we brought it into the warm-up already. We had a snatch balance. We taught you how to move your feet. We taught you speed under the bar. I see that athlete in my class who is not pulling themselves under the bar, but they did it beautifully in the practice. They did it in the warm-up. All right, drop the barbell. You're going to imagine yourself with a barbell and you're going to show me that speed, feel that speed again and repetition a couple of times, get them back into that framework and then put the barbell back in their hand. Don't be afraid to like peel them back to that practice element, even in the heat of the moment and say, look, this, you're not doing it. I saw you doing it before. Let's get your nervous system back to that with a couple reps of practice, then go back and feel it with the barbell. And I think that's not something that you commonly see a coach comfortable just saying like, take a step back, do this and then return to full speed. Yeah, so to summarize the attributes of a practice session, it's generally gonna be 
low heart rate. Now you could argue any type of heavy lifting will always be somewhat low heart rate, um, but lower heart rate, it's gonna be a high neurological benefit. You're gonna be thinking a lot and there's gonna be a coordination aspect that you're gonna be developing a mind-body connection there. Usually it's a low physiological benefit. It's not gonna be massively impactful for adding muscle, adding strength, adding um, you know, weight loss, like a, any type of like body result that someone wants to achieve. Practice is not the time to achieve those things. We're mainly talking about coordination. Um, and generally the loading, if there is a load involved, is gonna be low to moderate, okay? So we brought up this idea of having an empty PVC pipe. Not all practice has to happen with a PVC pipe. Maybe for some of your clients, it is true they do a better with a little weight in their hands, but that little weight is still gonna be under 50, 55, 60% of their max. That would designate more of a practice session. Um, if you want a rule of thumb, probably under 60% is a, a fair amount to say it's a practice session for a, a strength session. And, uh, and those are kind of the attributes that you're gonna be able to really focus on how that person is moving and they're never, they're never uh, moving badly because of the load or intensity that's being placed upon them. Now let's move on to training, okay? And this is where we should be spending the majority of our time if we wanna get better. And training kinda looks like a blend of practice and competing. There is still some level of thinking, but maybe instead of thinking about two or three things at once, we just have one thing we're focused on. And that one focus is smaller. We're not trying to change anything. We're usually just trying to maintain something that we already started to master in the practice sessions. Um, and there's always a repeatability that I notice to training that makes things effective. Maybe repeating intervals, uh, five by five back squats, something like that, where there's a repeatability to it in most training sessions. We're bringing that sport specific thing back into it. I mean, if we were talking about the baseball athlete swinging a bat or throwing a ball, now we're talking about them doing the strength and conditioning side of things. We're talking about them building their aerobic base, building their strength base up in ways that are, is going to give them a powerful bat swing. It's going to mimic that pattern, but it's not going to be a bat in their hand. It's not going to be a ball in their hand. They're not going to be doing the nervous system work as much as they're going to be doing just that overall gross motor pattern work in repeatable ways and things that are going to lead them to that strength base. And to use a, a even keep it in the sport specific, it looks more like a live BP or an infield outfield session versus just hitting off the tee or doing ground balls yeah. individually, right? We're starting to incorporate other members of the team. We're starting to get closer to what the live game looks like, but it's not the actual live game in and of itself. I was gonna use the same example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what could this look like? So if you have, we mentioned like five by five back squats, usually percentage wise, we're gonna be at 70 to 85% of either a one rep max or a perceived out, output. So like if you've done an open workout before, if you've done any type of workout where you've really pushed it and it was a 15 minute AMRAP, a 20 minute AMRAP, you could figure out your average paces for that workout and then you could start to train those average paces or just below those average paces, starting to increase your intensity with rest built in as an interval, as an EMOM, stuff like that. So if you have clients that want to get better and you have the ability to either program in a group class setting or one-on-one, -on -one, take the numbers you already have and then start to build those into intervals or sets that they can train them with a sense of repeatability to them. Yeah, I've worked with quite a few clients and their goal is like, you know, either improve a 5K or improve a mile and that's exactly what I did. Like, 
you know, your mile PR is whatever, eight minutes. You know, we break that down into the two minutes per 400 and mm -hmm. then they can do intervals. And ideally those intervals are just below their two minute pace, getting comfortable with that and maybe even doing more than a mile in those intervals. Maybe I'm doing five by 400s at a 155 pace or whatever it may be. But that's how I look at it too. Like you want to get close to simulating the feeling, but you don't want the feeling yet. You want to save those for the game day or the, or the competing that we'll talk about in a little bit, but you still want them to start understanding the feeling, understanding everything that comes along with actually going at it and attacking it. Yeah, this zone is really where we're taking you to the threshold. We're trying to push the thresholds, whether it's you know your aerobic capacity or your lactic threshold. Like We're trying to push towards that, but not exceed that, so you stay in that getting fitter state. The one thing I do want to say is bringing back the aspect of practice, like because training is where you will get fitter, you will actually see those physiological responses and the improvements. Without the practice, you're not going to be able to layer a lot of this in unless you have those skills neurologically built in. So I think what people, what we're getting at too, is that like without that underneath layer, this layer is not going to move too much farther if you can't dial it back to that practice at some point. So these kind of go hand in hand in that way of like each one builds on top of the other one to just get you towards that common goal of fitness. Yeah. And I think in practice, we can improve a skill in training. We can maintain a skill and then in competing, we test that skill. So one thing, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, like the idea of like a flow state or a, like, where do you learn the, the fastest or improve the fastest? And there's a balance, they call it like a balance of competence and challenge. So if you're so confident in something, like it's easy, you're, it's, it's too easy, you're bored, basically. You don't learn, you're bored. If it's too challenging, people get discouraged and they quit. So when you talk about the ideal situation to learn something or improve something, it's a balance between I have a certain amount of competence in it and I'm being challenged. And I think that that's what I think about with training is I think about the repeat examples. Like you, you know it's gonna be hard, but there's a, for the most part, there's an underlying confidence that you can hit the goal that's being asked of you. And most times you are able to, I think in a well-designed training session. Um, you were a rower, Mel, so you probably are really feeling that yeah. setting of like most of the time in those interval settings, it was hard, you might've doubted yourself, but if you really had to say, you know, at the beginning of it, was I confident I would get through it? Most of the time you're like, yes, I was, even though there was that seed of doubt. You didn't want to do it, <laughs> but you knew you could get through it for sure. Yeah. Cool. So again, training, if we were to summarize those attributes, it looks like a moderate to high uh, aerobic intensity or heart rate. It looks like a moderate neurological benefit. We still have a focus. We still have something that we're thinking about, a skill we're trying to maintain. The physiological benefit is at its highest. This is where we get fitter in most people's definition. We build the muscle, we build the strength, we lose weight, we shed the pounds. This is where it happens, is in training sessions. Um, and it requires a little bit of that blend of intention and pushing ourselves. Um, and usually the loading is gonna be moderate to high as well in those tasks. Now, the final category is competing, okay? And this is where we're testing the skills, all right? Every once in a while, we get better through competition, but more often than not, we're actually putting ourselves at a slight detriment through competing because we're 
we're willing to, to, to tow that line, push past that line, and, and potentially put ourselves at injury risk in an effort to push ourselves to something that we've never done before. This is the one that I think that can be misconstrued in the general fitness space because we have that big stage of like the CrossFit games to look up to as competing or going out for a competition. And I think the competing element takes form in the day-to-day -day fitness gym more than we actually like to admit to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more of a mentality than it is like actual being on a stage or being like a medal recipient or having some kind of fixed goal. I think people get into the realm of competing without knowing it when they start to take on the risk of certain movements. Like I think of, you know, um, when I ask for a client to kip a pull up, and then I'm saying, okay, well, they're like, well, should I kip or should I do strict today? I'm like, how many strict pull-ups do you have? Oh, I don't have any strict pull-ups. Okay, well, kipping's not on the table for you, but I've seen that person kip multiple times. Now I'm in a conversation of like their shoulder health and their strength balance. And, and I, you start to find these moments where you're like, wow, this person has always been looking at a standard and trying to compete against a standard in my classes instead of knowing the roadmap of where they should be in this skill. They're just looking at the skill. Like the person who's trying to do double unders when they don't know how to skip a rope one time, you know, you don't see that too much in double unders, but you do see it a lot in pull-ups. And I, I think that we only look at competing of like, oh, this person wants to run a marathon. This person wants to do a triathlon. This person wants to, you know, go to this in-house competition down the street with their friend as competing instead of looking at each skill and how someone might be overstepping their strength boundaries with that skill. Yeah, but, uh, we, we had just listened to the CrossFit podcast with Adrian Bosman talking about how he programs the CrossFit games. This is his first year of programming. And one of the questions that was asked is, do you, what, he kind of got asked like, what was his thoughts on the difference between programming for a training environment and a competing environment and he brought up that he thinks that, you know, in terms of Instagram and, and social media and kind of the, the gurus out there, a lot of them make us believe that those things are more separate than they are, that training and competing are very separate. And CrossFit has kind of found a way to have some level of success by every day as a mini competition in some way. And, and it's also really good training as well. But I think what you're bringing up is the downside of that is that if you don't have really good coaching or you can't really understand how to improve skills, then what happens is you, you skip a lot and you lose these foundational elements. And then, you know, that person that you're talking about that has kipping pull-ups, they might have eight to 10 or 12 good kipping pull-ups, but then they never get more than that. And they're just always stuck at that and they never get a strict. And they're always doing kind of the same thing over and over again, because they're not willing to spend some time in a true training environment or a true practice environment. And I think that that's kind of the, the con of what Boz was not really saying is that, yeah, I agree with him. You can just do CrossFit workouts and get fitter for a while, but you have to be smart at some point and figure out how to, how to train or practice. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think every coach who has any idea of programming in general would be able to look at something and be like, you know, this probably isn't good long term if it let's just take weightlifting because i think it's just the easiest to understand like if every day or every week or maybe twice a week it says build to a one rep max and then it just <laughs> keeps kind of repeating that it's like 
for a rookie, for someone who doesn't really understand or hasn't really been in the gym, they're kind of new, they probably will PR pretty often when that's the case. But then eventually you're going to get those people who have been there for two to ten years, whatever it may be. That's just not going to work. Like, they are at their threshold of strength or their threshold of technique. Something has to change. They either have to work on getting a little bit stronger. They have to go back even further and practice their technique to clean that up a little bit. And then they can, again, compete and go beyond whatever they're one at max was but yeah I, I always see those like the people who you know build to a heavies on the board today and they're like i'm going i'm going like i'm going for the new pr and it's like I, I don't think that's that's the point today nor is that a good idea for you because we need to work on this percentage or this movement or this whatever specific part of the lift is or we always see you know let's build to a moderate five or let's go to 85 percent today for five reps and then we see people who are trying to hit a five rep PR they're failing right. you know they're failing reps they're doing things that look more like competing with their numbers like that that's where I really think this one's so tricky and so nuanced because competing shows up in so many ways that we we have to like ask questions or really know that individual to be able to detect when someone's competing or not where I think that the novice coach just looks for it of like, oh yeah, well they don't really log their scores, they're not really putting their stuff on the whiteboard, they're not interested in competing when they might be competing a lot more often than we think when we do need to identify, hey, this person could benefit from training, this person needs some more understanding of, you know, maybe their core is breaking down in the front squat and they're going for this heavy five front squat. I might need to talk to them about, hey, you know, you're going over your 85% Today would be a great day to just focus on tightening up that core, keeping the keeping that structure tall, and you know, really sending it on a heavy five, but not not heavier than eighty five percent. You know, and really making sure that you can control this eighty five percent, so you will get a heavier five later. I think what you brought up, I was just thinking about, is people kind of base like efforts and percentages off of like these kind of titles. I think you know, like practice is too easy. Uh, training there's no way that could be hard yeah. and the only way I can go hard is if I'm competing and it's like I don't I don't know how many of you guys have done like intervals like like in a training sense of like repeatability like trying to hit the same numbers over and over again like that does not feel great like if you're doing them right and it, and it is more of a high intensity type um, repeatable workout like those those hurt really bad and honestly sometimes those are harder than just doing the game day work so I think if that's your mindset of like competing is the only time I get to send it, I would argue that in some instances. Even though I was just the one saying opposite with the weightlifting thing, I think you can actually push yourself in the training environment too, and it doesn't have to be competing. I guess if you want to say competing, like competing against yourself, like can I repeat this number? But that's like you training for a specific thing, and then the competition of that could be like there is no intervals. It's now five rounds for time. Right, so it's, it could be five intervals every three minutes, but and then in the actual compete itself, it's there is no rest anymore. Now it's just five rounds for time. Go for it. Yeah, I think the hallmark of really good training is it tends to start off moderately easy. If you guys think about like a well-designed EMOM that you've done before, a well-designed interval workout, when paced appropriately, you know, let's say it's five sets, could be five by five back squats. Even the first set of a five by five back squat, assuming it's the same weight across. It's okay, it's not too bad, but you're like, okay, I got four, I'm gonna have four more of these. It's that fourth and fifth set that really tests you. But the weight is no different. Right. You still got to rest as much as you needed. You should have had full rest in theory, but it's the fourth and fifth set is where 
that got really hard. And the same thing is true of a really well-designed EMOM, a well-designed interval workout. The work is not changing. Your output is not changing. The effort, the perceived effort is what changes. And I think it takes a lot of maturity and trust to be able to execute a really well-training workout. And I think there's an immaturity in, I'm gonna go out as hard as possible, I'm gonna blow up and I'm gonna survive. And that same thing is true in weightlifting. I'm gonna go as heavy as I can until I fail. To me, that just speaks of immaturity and not understanding how we actually get better at these things. I think there's a real, real obligation too. I mean, people will argue like, oh, programming doesn't matter. Your programming is a joke or whatever have you between gym to gym. But this is where the elegance of programming and being a great coach really like sells itself is being able to write these EMOMs and write these um, like, you know, maybe it's uh, every three minutes we're going for something that we know they can't accomplish in under two minutes. So they're, they're tired, they're fatigued, but they have to repeat it and they have to stay consistent. Like brilliant programming can pigeonhole some of these novice athletes who need something to feel so hard to feel like they're giving their best effort and still keep them in a training environment where they're not, you know, typically imploding. So let's let's break this down with specific movements and specific workouts. The workout that I want to share is uh, a workout called Cement Mixer, which I believe is a CrossFit New England benchmark. And it's seven rounds every three minutes of a 400 meter run and 12 toes of bar. And the reason I want to use this example is I think you could program that workout for a group. And then you could, depending on the client you have in front of you, make it more of a practice day, make it more of a training day, make it more of a competition day. So I think in a practice day, we really have to make sure that this person is, is keeping that heart rate low. So it might look like they're gonna do a 200 meter run and then they're gonna do 10 kip swings, but they're gonna do those kip swings with an object squeezed between their feet and they're gonna focus on really making that connection between their lats, their core, their hips, everything working together and, and so there's a really key practice element. And they're gonna be able to finish around, get to pretty much 100% recovery for each round, okay? Now, if that was, if we were just doing a 100% practice session for toes of bar, is that the most ideal practice session? Maybe not, but it definitely makes this workout more practice oriented. Now, if we're gonna do a training environment, this is where consistency comes in. We have to hit the same times or within one or two seconds of each other in order to get that training benefit. And maybe it's like, okay, you're gonna go slow enough on your runs that you can 100% match your time and that you can stay unbroken on your toes to bar, right? Whereas maybe in the competing side, we say you're gonna intentionally break it up. You're gonna actually push the runs, intentionally break up your toes to bar. And then as you get to the end, you might be doing singles on toes to bar just to get through it. And they could be sloppy, you could be dropping from the top, whatever you need to do, but you're gonna make sure that no matter what, your score is your slowest time. That last round, you know, as you start to get tired, cannot be your slowest time. I'm not saying this is how every workout should be, but what I noticed when you were just talking about that is the practice was a one to two work to rest ratio. Mm, the rest yeah. was more than the work. The training was a pretty close to one to one, and then the compete was more of like a two to one, so two to work to rest ratio. So if you notice like every interval that we went or everything we changed, every bucket we changed, the rest was getting shorter and shorter, which makes it even harder to yeah. repeat that effort or keep good technique or whatever you're saying. Like, you know, you send the, the total bar on the, the competing side, maybe getting ugly and I'm, I'm sure they will because you're just really tired at that point. 
Yeah, another competing version would be, okay, you're just gonna do 21 minutes straight through. 21 minute AMRAP, yeah. 400 meter run, 12 toes of bar, right? And that becomes the competition version of that same workout. Now I wanna also break this down with individual movements. So let's take the double under. And let's say we have a client who is uh, decent at them. They can do eight, 10, 15 unbroken double unders. So they're a client that could really, in any given day, they could practice them, they could train them, they could compete them, because if a workout calls for double unders, they could survive and get through it and, and make it work to compete. But if they're capping out at 12 or 15, there's probably something they could practice. And in this case, let's just say this person has a big donkey kick. They don't really push through their toes. They kind of do like a half jump and most of how they create air under their feet is just by pulling their heels up to their butt. So if we wanted to have this person practice, this could look like a 10 minute open window where they're just doing sets of uh, just like calf raises into jumps where they're focused on actually extending at the ankle, hitting triple extension. And then maybe once that looks good, we move into double taps and they're starting to add the timing of the hands in there. Mm -hmm. I would even say like a step further, maybe this falls a little bit more into training because we're involving the rope, but like a tall, slow single under, like getting the cadence Correct. of a yeah. feet together, maybe an object in between the feet too, just like a, like a kip swing would, but like something to keep them in that straight toes down jump. Yeah. Something that's more focused, more deliberate and more, um, cadence to where they're really in the zone and trying to focus on that. And the answer a great point. So that would transition into maybe a training environment and maybe the training environment is, all right, you're going to do a 10 minute EMOM of 10 tall single under jumps right into 10 double unders. And you have up to two or three attempts to hit your 10 double unders and it's every minute on the minute. So over the course of 10 minutes, you're going to accumulate 200 jump rope, hundred singles, hundred dubs. There's starting to be some fatigue building up, um, but you're starting to blend the neurological with the stimulus of cardio and intensity there. And then if you're competing, it could look like really any workout that has double unders in it where there's a score, there's an AMRAP, there's a rounds for time, you know, anything really works there. That's the easy part. And that's really the point of this whole thing is that it's really easy to create hard or fun or sexy looking competition workouts. It requires a lot more knowledge and nuance and expertise as a coach to say, what could this athlete benefit from the most? And in some cases, do I want to really encourage this person to move to a personal training or personal programming route? Or can smart adjustments to their class workout give them more time in these other two buckets that they're not getting today? Yeah, I think this is where we also, as coaches, like really have to look deeply at, at the athlete in front of us and say, like, what do I see this athlete? Is this just a moment right now that they're telling me about their, you know, inability to do strict pull-ups like I was talking about before? Or is this something that I've seen multiple, multiple times from this athlete in all different aspects of their career or their journey here with me? Is this someone who's always you know, diligent about putting all their time scores and trying to do the RX or the standard that we prescribe and where else are they, is this showing up to see like where else is this happening? Could they be more in a training setting? Do we need to have a conversation of like putting them back into this 
or just looking at that one single movement, like we talked about with the snatch. I mean, it could be as simple as taking that one drill and saying, look, anytime you feel like you're failing or you get to this number, you say you get to 155 and you can't go to 160, that's where we put this drill in. That's where I want you to get this drill in your back pocket, do it six, seven times before you do your next lift, then go and see how it feels. I think that's a great point, Mel, which is like there's, we're talking about kind of the science behind it, the coaching side of it, but it's a two-way conversation and we have to understand what is that client's aspiration to learn this thing because we might be a hard sell on, you got to do this for your double unders, you got to do this for your pull-ups and they're like, I don't care. And I think a lot of times they do to a certain degree, they do care, but they don't understand that the path to getting that thing might be easier or more clear than they thought. And I think sometimes it's just that balance of first hearing if it is a goal of theirs. And then once it is, you understand that it is a goal, even if it's a small seed of a goal, it says, well, I think with, I think with just a little bit of practice once a week or a little bit of a tweak to this type of workout, I think you can see a lot of improvement in this area and getting them to see that that is a potential path. That's where the, I think the, the art of this comes down to more than just the science of it, of how do we get buy-in from the client to want to actually spend the time in these other categories. Yeah, is this a client who is coming in to compete and that <laughs> is their mindset and they want to get better at competing? Or is this a client who's coming in to compete who does not care about training or practice, who just wants to compete? Those are two different people. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really different client and a really different outcome when you have a conversation with them. So I've also, I've also learned in the, the time I've been in the industry that the people who are actually the most competitive spend the least amount of time competing. <laughs> you know, they spend the most amount of time practicing and training so that when they do compete, they're actually ready to compete. You know, they have their skills figured out. They've hit their interval numbers that they need to hit. And then they go compete. Josh, our coach, is a good example. Like, he's competing at the games this coming weekend. It's like... He's put in a lot of practice hours. He's put in a lot of training hours. I don't think I've ever now, seen him do a one rep max. I don't know either. <laughs> Actually, I do. And it was during the qualifiers. Like, yeah. that was his only time. So I think that's a good example of, like, I think you brought up the maturity level thing. Like, he's a very mature, experienced athlete, and he knows if he actually wants to get better and improve, those are the steps. And you have those people, you said, that come in who only want to compete. You can, you can basically guess where they're going to be in a year from now, and it's either worse or just at where they were. Yeah, I guess I would add one more bucket to our practice training competing, and that is that education component of like, does this person know what this would do for them? And, and, and am I helping them understand the importance of what this could do so that they can make a better choice about what they're doing mm -hmm. for themselves? Because I feel like when we're talking about maturity, we're just kind of talking about a little bit of ignorance on our client's part. They come to us for the science of coaching. They come to us for the knowledge that we have that they don't. And if they are interested in getting there, practice training or competing might be one of the three ways to get them there. Yeah, and I think how you, how you talk about your workouts on a daily basis is going to open them up to the possibility more of this. So you can't change that overnight, but I think if, you're, if your talk is always about, oh, the best person got this score, or I want you guys to go, you know, you're talking about the level of effort or intensity you want them experience as opposed to maybe the the skill or the focus they want to have from a movement perspective you can change the conversation slowly and subtly over time and then that opens up the individual conversations and and desire to want to get more of those things 
Um, I was just thinking about the sport example, bringing it back. I'm like, you know, Steph Curry doesn't play, he doesn't play a game and then he finishes his game and then he goes plays a scrimmage, you know, of street ball. He goes and shoots like, you know, the story behind him and people like Kobe and Michael Jordan is like, they, they would do a, th- a thousand makes a day. They wouldn't leave the court until they do a thousand makes. So those guys go in and do the most basic shots, you know, the most basic free throw, the most basic layup, three point shot, unguarded, and, and they just do that. And that is their, you know, blend of practice and training that they're doing, you know, and pitchers throw strikes. And if they haven't <laughs> thrown this weekend or in, during the series, they're going to go do the work and they're going to throw no matter if they threw in a competition or if they're going to make their, you know, pitches after the game's over and the bullpen shut down. And more often than not, there's not a batter standing there, yeah. right? So there's not that person they're trying to get out in that moment they're trying to execute on what's under their control in that moment hopefully you guys found this helpful um hopefully this can help you guys get your clients better if you guys have any questions don't hesitate to reach out uh you can reach out to andrew at fittown.com or melissa austin at fittown.com and uh thank you guys for watching see you in the next one